a Lion Fury production. Welcome to Wolf and Cub Film Club, a film review show with a twist. What's the twist, you ask? Well, it's me and me dad. He's the wolf, and I'm the cub. There's another thing. We're both filmmakers. Wolf, Steve Thomas, makes documentaries and is a film school senior lecturer. And Cub, that's me, Danny Thomas, am also a writer and an actor. So grab a chock top, sit back and relax as we discuss two films per episode, often with a common theme between them. On this episode, we have a music theme. In part one, we'll discuss Beastie Boy's story, a live documentary experience about the band's friendship and journey. In part two, we'll look at Amy, an intimate portrait of British singer Amy Winehouse's life and career. Let's get into it. How are you anyway, Wolf? Okay, I've had a busy day, but I'm here. (laughs) Welcome to the Wolf and Cub Film Club, guys. Today, Wolf and I are going to look at two documentaries, both music-related, and the first is... The Beastie Boys live doco directed by Spike Jones. Is it Jones or Jones? I'm assuming it's Jones, and I thought it was called The Beastie Boys Story. You would be right, Pop. Maybe it's called something different in Australia. No, it's actually, (laughs) it's it's called Beastie Boys Story, and then there's an under title, which is a live doco. I think that's what it says on Apple. A live documentary. So Beastie Boy Story, a live documentary. It's on Apple TV, directed by Spike Johns, I think it is. Okay. Whatever you say, because I don't know. <laughs> that's the, the first one. And the second is the Amy documentary, directed by Asif Kapadia. So we have two musical documentaries and we're going to get stuck into Beastie Boys first. I'm not a massive Beastie Boys fan, but their song Sabotage is my one of my favourite drum tracks of all time. But you also have a connection with the Beastie Boys because weren't they involved in your first on-screen performance? I thought of that and that was uh, the stutter rap. <laughs> Yeah, was that Beastie Boys? I actually, I meant to check that, whether Stutter Rap was Beastie Boys or not. It is the Beastie Boys. It is the Beastie Boys. It is. I'm sure. I think with these two docos, I know it's essentially about the films first and foremost, but I'm not going to be able to resist today talking about some personal experiences given my experiences in bands. Just to interrupt because I've stuffed up completely. <laughs> Stutter Rap's actually by Morris Minor. And yeah, it's Mo- yeah, it is. That's why I meant to check it. <laughs> so I screwed up there. But it's a very Beastie Boys song, isn't I, it? Well, we're on the same train of thought because I I thought of that. I was like, oh, Beastie Boys is a Stutter Rap. But then when I, I heard Stutter Rap, I was like, that's not Beastie Boys, but it sounds so much like it. But now I remember it's Morris Minor and the and the mage, Majors. <laughs> Morris, Morris Major and the Minors. Morris Major and the Minors. No, We're off Morris, to a <laughs> No, it's Morris Minor and the Majors. It is too. Well, it was 1988 when I did the children's workshop, so... Um, Bouncing up and down on a 
on a bed. Yeah, looking completely unsure. Yeah, hair all spiked up <laughs> and a pair of acid wash jeans. Yeah, at 80s. Of, at the age of, what, 10 or something. Well, it was 88, so the age of nine. But that was my first experience doing a children's TV workshop at the old Open Channel. I remember it being such an exciting thing at that age and it was so much more interesting to me than school but it was a it was a really good children's workshop for like editing and making a production and getting the kids behind the camera in front of the camera knocking productions out it was a very unique experience as a kid and I think it gave me a taste of film production and it was great that I did it and it's still on tape and it's got nothing to do with the Beastie Boys. <laughs> Maybe they were influenced by the Beastie Boys. I mean, I wasn't a Beastie Boys fan, so you put me through two hours and <laughs> two hours and four minutes history of the Beastie Boys, which was quite interesting, I thought. But I'm interested to hear what you thought first. Like, I, I really enjoyed it, to be honest. And I think part of that was the live, the format of it, the live thing. So in what in what sense is it live? You need to explain to our listeners out there. So it's essentially an integrated visual storytelling experience from the two guys, two remaining members firsthand on the stage in front of a live audience. Yeah, in a theatre. So it's essentially, when it calls itself a live documentary, it's a recording of a live stage performance with the two remaining members of the Beastie Boys because the third member is no longer with us. And when the vision is important on the screen, it cuts to full screen and then it comes back to seeing the two guys on the stage and... It becomes apparent they're reading off of the teleprompter because there's a few jokes about that along the way and they get their lines wrong and things like that, which is quite a sort of um, appealing approach, I thought, to sort of keep that live sense in there of a live performance. But essentially it's a recording of a stage performance with, as you say, stuff going on the screen in the background. I liked I didn't mind it when they made mistakes because it to me again being in bands it reminded me of the things that go wrong when you're playing live and that you have to deal with in the moment. I mean they're pros they've been doing this for 30 years they so they're pros at navigating that stuff so it wasn't an issue for them when things went awry they were able to make light of it so I didn't mind that. And it was also structured in chapters from from the beginning right through to the end. And, of course, they weren't playing on stage because they're no longer the Beastie Boys uh, without Yelk. Um, so the two guys are Mike Diamond and Adam Horowitz, for those who might know the Beastie Boys. I thought the acronym for their name, the Beastie Boys, was hilarious. Which is? <laughs> Which is Boys Entering anarchistic states toward excellence in towards inner excellence i've missed inner let me do that again <laughs> boys entering 
anarchistic states toward inner excellence. This is the thing about band names. They just don't become good until the band becomes good. And they come from such obscure places. The way massive bands come up with their names, it's often just like a joke or a, or something they don't think much of. And then, it, you know, next thing you know, it's down in history. It makes you wonder what the Beatles is an acronym for. I've been in a, a lot of situations trying to come up with band names. And you're often trying to come up with the name before you know what you're about. There's just, it doesn't matter how big the band is. There's a lot of consistencies I find with rock and roll stories. And one with the Beastie Boys was the, one of their original members, the female drummer. And in all these great rock and roll stories, it seems common there's often somebody ousted in the early stages. So it was really interesting that she was around and she reappears all the way through it's not like she came and left she keeps bobbing up through the through the story and do you relate relate to this because you were at any stage the ousted person i was never ousted but i had pressure on me as a drummer there were a few moments unfortunately i was essentially involved in the breakup of my first two bands it often seems to be the drummer who's asked it, though. <laughs> it was the case with the Beastie Boys and the Beatles. In in this case, it's because the drummer was a girl. And they're, I think they're a bit embarrassed about that now, the way that they talked about it. Uh, they kind of regretted it. But at the time, rap, you know, rap was a kind of... DMC and all those people that they admired were groups of two or three guys and so the three guys that were the Beastie Boys as did Kate I think her name was and became the White Rap Boys and these record guys saw that there was a saw that there was a niche there for a white rap band one of the nice things about the film is that the two guys that are telling the story, the two surviving members of the band, they don't take themselves too seriously, you know, and and they kind of never have as a band. Another aspect of rock and roll band stories, as you were talking about the thing of the drummer, is that they go through this cycle. So they start off kind of naive and innocent, and are enjoying themselves, and then they become famous and well-known, and they have to get on on the, the production line of touring and never-ending touring, never-ending being away from home, the never-ending pressure of being famous. That leads to whatever kinds of excesses, whether it's drugs or drink, or and then they become jaded and kind of fall in a heap which is what happened with the Beastie Boys, then you get the redemption part of the story. Adam Yeach kind of quits and they don't play for a while and then they get back together and they actually start to learn, as they say in the the film, in the performance, they actually learn to play instruments and learn to play music, whereas before they were just kind of making up crazy rap kind of lyrics and just delivering them and so on. And that was where sabotage and all 
all that kind of came from. So you, you get that process of innocence, fame, it all falls in a heap because of the excess, the excesses of fame. Then there's the kind of redemption, but of course then someone in the band dies and that's kind of... With the Beastie Boys, it's the end of the story because Adam Yates was really, as they say in, at the end of the at the end of the film, he was the motivator. He was the inspiration, really, that kept the other guys going. He didn't die of excess; he died of cancer. But it's it's that same kind of journey, and it's a journey, of course, which is repeated in endless other music films, including Amy which we're going to talk about in a minute. So I found I got drawn in and I got drawn in by the, you know, the nature of the creative process because, you know, they say that at first that like their creative process was just as the lark around, just fucking around and making each other laugh. And then they kind of, they got burned out and all the rest of it. And one of them says, you know, at the age of 22, you don't know what to do with your feelings. You just put them into whatever you're doing. There's this kind of instinctive, creative process, which is a form of self-expression. And then when it all falls in a heap, they have to kind of take a check on that and work out, well, what were we up to? What do we want to do? You know, how do we want to proceed? And then they... I think they jettisoned their management, started their own label, all that kind of thing that that a lot of bands do when they realise that they're being exploited because they get to that stage where they're famous. And this is another kind of archetype or, I don't know if it's an archetype or a stereotype of these kinds of stories, but they get to the point where they're famous but they got no money, nobody's paying them. And so they have to take control for themselves and they embark on the next period and then, unfortunately, that comes to an end because of premature death. So I got drawn into that kind of archetypal rock music narrative, if you like. It's almost like the hero's journey of bands, this archetypal rock story. And the Beastie Boys, I mean, they were kids when they were propelled onto the world stage and they were doing all this crazy shit, like just give us a giant dick on the stage and all that sort of stuff. And then as they matured, they became men. And that's the fact that they were together for so long. I mean, they just, they grew up together, but I can't imagine you know, having had a, a very medium level taste, you know, small to medium level taste of gigging and being in bands, I can't imagine what it would be like to be on world tour as teenagers, as kids, and just being thrown onto the stage every night. And if, like you say, they it got to the point where they capitulated either, either individually or collectively. And yeah, had to take a, take a look at stuff. The the irony, which is also similar in Amy, which we we'll which we'll discuss. The irony of some of their early songwriting, talking about the creative process. The irony was they were taking the the piss out of some of those college 
jock guys and then they realized that it was those guys who were embracing their music so they wrote a song essentially taking the piss out of that whole scene and they became some of their fans at one point so there's just a whole lot of luck and irony and in in what they're doing and and so much of it was out of their hands in a way yeah it was a there's a amusing moment where they they talk about how they were busy taking the piss out of what they call the fraternity, which I think is a frat, which is what we call the kind of middle-class university types. Um, And then they realised that that, that's exactly who their audience was made up of, that the fraternity actually were turning up to to see the to see themselves have the piss taken out of them, you know. Um, yeah, so, there's, real, there's real irony in that. Yeah, 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 it's hilarious, really, yeah. The thing about bands, it's always this dynamic of whether it's four individuals, in this case three. Three, three is a very hard number because it's always two-on-one and the, the two-on-one shit can shift but it's it's often two on one when it comes to decision making. So, because pers- personally, I was in four piece bands and three piece bands, and the dynamic in a four piece was easier to navigate when it came to making decisions because there was a mix of four people. But three was much harder because it was often two on one, and the fact that these guys were able to hold it together for so long with various ups and downs ultimately what got them through was their their brotherhood and their mateship from my experience in bands that was all I was ever after really was I wasn't in it for I, I was obviously in it as a musician and to make music but a mateship and a friendship was a huge part of that and a band is a family it's a marriage and the guys that work at that and make sure that everything's evenly split they're the ones that last. So I'm always fascinated by a band that has such a longevity. And in the, in this case, they stopped when Yao passed away because they just couldn't go on. You know, he, he was obviously too integral to the, to the whole thing. I mean, there's loss in everybody's lives, but in the music industry, with its, I guess, with its association with excess of drugs and so on, there seems to be more loss. And so Adam gets not just teary about Adam Yauk, but he lists all the people that they've lost along the way, including the girl drummer and his mother and his father and all these other people that have passed away. And Yoke is kind of a last straw, I guess. Um, and he gets, he get, actually gets teary on stage, if you remember. Yeah. Reminiscing yeah. about that, the loss of those people along the way. So although they were the three Beastie Boys, they all they were always part of the gang. They always had other people kind of involved. And that was obviously important to them as well. The other thing I, w- I wanted to just raise was the question about, you know, perspective and point of view, because uh, when you look at the credits, the the 
the writing credit is shared. It says directed by Spike Jones or Jones, whichever it is, but the writing credit is is the three of them. Uh, the, the two guys on stage from the Beastie Boys and Spike Jones. So you get a sense, you know, well, you are, you then ask the question of what kind of collaboration is it and is there any uh, self-censorship involved there? I didn't really get the sense there is um, or was, unlike, say, um, the Rolling Stones in South America film. I don't know if you've seen that one where they go to Cuba. I mean, it's produced by Mick Jagger and one of the other Stones. They're they're the producers. And so you you just know that no one in the film is going to badmouth the Rolling Stones. You know, it's going to be the portrayal of the Rolling Stones that they want portrayed. It's not an independent film. The Beastie Boys, it's a collaboration. So, you know, I wonder to what degree, to what to what degree it is kind of the band's view of themselves, and to what degree Spike Jones has um, helped to shape. That's very interesting comparative, comparatively to Amy as well. Yeah, um, which but- is an independent film made by an independent filmmaker. Exactly, and but the thing with Spike Jones is he has a history with the Beastie Boys. He did the sabotage video clip, yeah. So also he has been a part of their journey right through. But yeah, when it's the guys, the guys in it who are making it, it's it's hard to to you never know what's been left out or jazzed up or no. Exactly. The, the redeeming feature, I think, is, is that they are kind of quite self-deprecating. They're not, they're not trying to present a kind of nice image. And, no, they were very honest guys and they were, they were very upfront about the things that they... Yeah, that they regret. They regretted. And I, I don't think they knew it was going to be their last show when they did their last show. They didn't, No. I think that was the chapter heading or the the first thing he said was, you know, we didn't know this would be our last gig. And I've experienced that myself, as I say, on a small scale. It's you're on this thing and it's happening and and often, yeah, how do you know it's going to be your last show? So that that really hit home in a way. And and then the spiritual journey that Yao went on in to bed. He he seemed like a guy who just a very a, a guy who was curious about humanity and having been elevated onto stages so young and he was obviously opening himself to a load of different experiences meeting the Dalai Lama and then for him to organize that massive charity show that was huge. Yeah. In a way, I guess I keep referring to the Beatles because I suppose they're my reference frame. He's like he was like the George Harrison of the Beastie Boys, and he goes off and studies Buddhism, meets the Dalai Lama, sets up this huge concert for Tibetan, the first free Tibet concert, uh, and becomes a very spiritual kind of guy. 
And then, like George Harrison, dies of cancer prematurely. They they say of each other, we know each other, you know, we know what makes each other tick. But Yeoch, he was a puzzle. He was an enigma. We You never kind of, he was unpredictable. You never knew what, what he was going to going to kind of come up with next, um, which, of course, was part of the attraction, I guess, and part of his kind of inspirational influence. But, yeah, they, they, they describe him as a kind of enigmatic person to the end. On, on a side note of it, they used a lot, they did use some props at times too, and one of my favourite parts, actually, of it was when they wheeled out the loop machine. where they'd which is where they'd and as i say i'm not a i'm not a huge fan of of rap in general right i respect guys like eminem things i think they're poets in a way but it's not really my niche but what always appealed to me about the beastie boys was their drum sound and the thing about this looping was my understanding is that at the time if you're going to rap over a a drum beat, uh, the human element to the drums is is loose. But when when guys started looping using tape tape machines, they were able to get a repeated perfect drum pattern. So in in their case, they got the intro to Led Zeppelin when the levy when the levy breaks and looped the intro. So. They were essentially taking creatively. They were essentially sampling and taking bits of other music and then adding their own thing over the top. And that's why the creative process was fascinating. But John Bonham, as a drummer from Led Zeppelin, has a, had a massive drum sound and pioneered the type of drum sound. So when they looped that and just did the intro of when the levy breaks, I was like, that's to me, that drum sound was just awesome. And when, but they wheeled that out on the show and they had, they had a kind of prop, which is cool to add some props and the visual and the storytelling on stage. That was a cool moment for me. I did see them live once the beastie boys. I think it was in, it was very late in their, the later part of their career, obviously. And they, my memory of it, it was it was very, very clinical as a show in a way. They just came out, they did the songs, they were wearing suits, and, and they got off. There wasn't much more to it. There wasn't, I don't remember any kind of speeches with the crowd or anything. They just did their thing and left. But I was really there to, to see Sabotage played live because of the, because of the drums. It's a phenomenal drum track and it's the bass riff by Yao. It's the, the drums and the bass. It's the rhythm section of that song, which is Yao on the bass and Adam on the drums there. It's, it's an epic. He's strumming the bass, isn't he? Yeah. He's playing. He's not just doing the root notes. He's using the full, he's using the full range. Mm. And that's part of them maturing and refining their, their sound and learning how to play play their instruments and that sort of thing so well I, I didn't know sabotage there's a lot of screaming in the song that <laughs> I recall <laughs> well I thought that was my thought I thought in recommending the doco to you I knew it wouldn't be your style of music that's for sure but I saw a lot of other stuff that might 
interest you? Yeah, no, I, I once I got into it, I found it uh, a really engaging film, and you know, with ups and downs and 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 rhythms of a of a, as I say, a kind of classic rock and roll story, really. And these two guys are survivors. I think it would have been amazing to be in the in the audience. It would have been a, a different experience again being there live. That's the cool thing about this podcast, I think, is we we hopefully expose each other to things that you might not have watched otherwise. Yeah, well, I certainly wouldn't have picked, picked up the Beastie Boys story, so I'm um, I'm glad I did. But I must say, I kept thinking of you at the Open Channel TV workshop, thinking that that was the Beastie Boys. So did I, because it's very similar sound. <laughs> I don't know what else Morris Minor and the Majors did. They must, they must have been a one-hit wonder. Intermission. If you need to nip to the bathroom, restock the popcorn, or move seats because the bloke next to you is obnoxious, now's the time to do it. A quick word from our sponsor. Ah, uh, we don't have one, but we're hoping to get one. Let's get into our second film in this double feature. Well, the, the the film that I chose, and I didn't choose it because I've only just seen it. I've seen it before, but when I when I was thinking about, it, okay, you've put Danny's put up a music doc. I better put up a music doc, and um, I was kind of trawling through. I had a look at another look at Marley, the Kevin McDonald um, one on Marley's life. I even had a look at. Um, a couple of docos with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, but somehow Amy just kept coming back to me, the story of Amy Winehouse. And when I started, um, when I went back to have, have another look at it, I was thinking about, well, who made this film? And as you said earlier, it's Asif Kapadia, who's an English filmmaker and responsible for... Senna, one of our favourite docos, and also, which I didn't realise, the Diego Maradona doco. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah, 2019. Oh, I did know that. Yeah, I did know that when I saw the trailer, yeah. Right, yeah, the story of um, his time at FC Napoli, who had never won a trophy until Maradona arrived and then they won everything. But being a criminal, criminal-based city, apparently, Maradona gets sucked into the criminal side of things. Oh, Naples, yeah, yeah, and the. So we haven't seen that. We haven't seen the the Maradona one. I've seen it. You have seen it. Yeah, have you seen it? I've seen a Maradona documentary, but I don't think it was that one. This one's called Diego Maradona. It specifically focuses on his time at Napoli and the unhappy ending to the, like the up and down of that story. And it was made because about 500 hours of unseen archival footage following Maradona through that period came to light somehow or other. And this is what... Um, Kapadia does. I mean, he describes he describes this as the third. He describes the 
the Maradona film as the third part of a trilogy about troubled geniuses, particularly child geniuses, and their kind of clashes with fame and the effect that it has. And what he does in Senna and in Amy and in the Diego Maradona film is he employs, essentially employs archival footage. And the richness of that footage is apparent in each of those films. In fact, he doesn't run on-screen interviews, which is something that normally I would kind of object to because I think if someone has something interesting to say, then we ought to see them say it. But this is... uh, Capadia's his style and it works and it works because particularly with Amy well and with Senna um, it works because there is such rich archival material available to him and of course I mean Maradona was still alive when he made that film but both Senna and Amy Winehouse were dead and somehow that archive bring not only brings them back to life, but all the people that you hear from are in the archive footage. So it's just this kind of brilliant use of archive to the extent where in Amy there is no on-camera interview, except I think there's a very short one at the very end with her ex-husband, I think it is, and that's the only bit of to-camera interview. All the other interview is carried as voiceover over archive. And that's the same with Senna and it's the same with um, with Maradona. Yeah, sorry, just on the visual thing, yeah, because I had seen Amy before when you recommended to see it again. This time I was really able to watch it from a visual sense as well. And you're absolutely spot on about the richness of the archival footage because it just speaks the complete honest truth for itself with no gimmick. Yeah, the archival footage is what it is with narration over it and also a focus on the words and the lyrics. But I I picked up on that watching it the second time. I was like, this is just amazing archival footage with the only things used in transitions was a lot of city shots and shots of London. Were, were they still archival footage or would that have been something that was added? No, they were the cursed drone the, the cursed drone footage, which became very popular around that time. When you look at the Marley film, it's full of drone shots across Jamaica, you know, looking down on the countryside. And Amy uses exactly the same device, drone footage uh, going across London and across the suburbs of London. And It was also a, a fad because drones were fairly new you know, three, four, five years ago, drones were just or broadcast quality kind of filming from drones was all the go and every film had drones in it. These days, you know, it's such a fad. I would never use a drone or if I was going to use one, I'd want to find a different way of using it. But, yeah, I think apart from those aerial shots, everything is archived, but it's not. You said it's the archive as it is, and it's not the archive as it is because there's an interesting interview with Asif Kapadia where he says 
you know, we, and I'm quoting, we take footage, either sports, television, paparazzi or tabloid material, which already exists, and we give it a new interpretation by slowing it down, by zooming in, by changing the colours, by adding text, graphics, sound, music, voices, and we're creating a mosaic, which I hope, and I hope we're giving that material a new meaning, perhaps something deeper and more aesthetic, spiritual, political, and emotional. Yeah, that's massive. <laughs> so they're playing around with the argument. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it was just mind-blowing. I, I thought to myself, where did they get some of this stuff? I mean, there was phone phone footage from the boyfriend in the apartment. It's like, well, how do you how do you get a hold of that off a guy who essentially didn't have anything to do with her in the end, or you don't, you know, who knows the history, but how you get a hold of some of these. And at that time, cameras were a little more primitive. They were still phone cameras and stuff, but just how you get, get a hold of that little detail stuff. And just, there, there was some stuff that just synced up so beautifully. One, one thing that just jumped out to me while it comes to mind is when her, original or her friend or manager nick the guy who was kind of getting her out there when she was young they were mates as she got bigger and and he was out of the picture there's one shot where it's just him and her in a street and he's talking about how he's out and he just disappears from the frame as he says at that moment i was gone and he just beautifully is out of the frame well, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know where Capadia gets half this footage from. I mean, he must, he must have a whole team of people. I mean, a lot of it was paparazzi footage, um, and he must, you know, know journalists and put out calls to journalists. Some of it is home video footage. There's quite a few kind of audio interviews with Amy so you kind of feel her presence as well. And I, whether he got those from private sources or radio stations, I don't know. But, you know, it's all there. It's absolutely all there. No need for anyone to explain what's going on for narration or anything like that. That's what I mean. It's, br- it's brutal, brutally honest because it's just there. And just a bit of text now and then and constantly telling you who it is that's speaking. And, you know, that that's the other thing about Papalia is whether it's his reputation or his manner, he gets everyone on board. So everyone is in Amy, including, you know, the slightly dubious father who seems to be uh, just wanting to exploit her, the ex-boyfriend who's, you know... Um, Reformed now, it seems, but at the time was part of the reason for her spiral into drugs and uh, and everything. So he's, you know, he's got all those people in there, and he's not being judgmental about them. He's not setting one up against another. He uses them to kind of tell the story. Uh, I think he's a, a superb kind of craft person from from that point of view and you 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 sort and the father you know i did a bit of googling of interviews and stuff the father who was um who had left amy and her mum 
to their own devices when she was young, but then comes back on the scene and he's almost manages her and she takes I mean when he says you don't need to go to rehab she she says okay I don't need to go to rehab she's got this strange dependency on this man that abandoned her as a child and he took exception to the film and said that he had been painted uh, in a negative light and you know he kind of disagreed with aspects of the film from that point of view but they're all in there and they're all part of the story. And, you know, it's the same story. It's, it's the innocence, the creative kind of genius of innocence, which then becomes a story of excess. And in Amy's case, excess, which she never really manages to overcome. So there are redeeming moments in the film and perhaps the most redeeming moment is a private moment almost where she does a duet with um, Tony Bennett the old kind of jazz singer who she's admired all her life and she's she's so kind of overcome by this opportunity to sing with him that it is quite a redeeming moment but then you get that concert in Belgrade and these moments where she's so smashed and off her face she can't even perform and it, and it all comes crashing down. So with Amy, I mean, I think she only made two albums, you know. She was a light that burned very brightly but very briefly, whereas the Beastie Boys managed to go through two or three incarnations or reincarnations before the final kind of loss of uh, Adam Yetch brought it all to, a, all to an end. There's a lot of it that's close to the bone for me personally, having been in Camden around that time. I was hanging out a lot in Camden. I, I walked past a bar. She was in one night. I was in circles of people who had had nights out with her and that whole Camden scene in the north of London around that time with the Libertines and, and guitar bands, I was very much in that and playing in a band myself and the good mixer where she used to hang out is a little, a little bar in uh, Camden that I used to frequent. And it's a tiny little bar with a pool table and it smells like vomit. And that was her, one of her regular haunts. So that time and place was very close, but also, also her struggles with addiction and things like that. It was very raw for me, but I think, she was an old soul in a young body and she had that, the resonance of just that um, jazz voice so young and just this gift, just the resonance in her voice was really of someone who'd been around the traps for years and she just had that straight away. But you could see very early on that she was, you know, some of those early interviews with media and stuff, you could see she was getting irritated pretty quickly and trying to hold on to being an uncompromising artist and, and doing what she loved. And you could see that struggle pretty quick, that friction within herself, trying to, trying to juggle it. And then just how brutal the British paparazzi and, and media are in Britain with, with the hounding and how quickly all that escalated. Well, it's interesting too about, you know, because again, 
as with the Beastie Boys, there's discussion about the creative process. And I think it's that, no, it's her pianist who says, Amy needs music as if it was a person, a person she would die for. You know, it's like music was as important to her as any person in her life, like she had to do it. And I was never an Amy Winehouse fan. It's another thing about Capadia's film, just like with Senna. You don't need to be a fan of Formula One racing to engage with Senna's story, nor do you need to be an Amy Winehouse fan to engage with the story. And, of course, a lot of airtime is given to her songs because they're fantastic and her voice is fantastic, but also because the lyrics of her songs are about the experiences that she's going through. So her songs are part of the story as well. Um, and if I remember rightly, the lyrics come up on the screen as graphics when she's singing, and so you can actually kind of follow her telling the story of her own life, of the breakup with, what's his name, the Blake. boyfriend, Blake, or, who, or whatever's going on for her. Her lyrics were extremely personal, but she also, you know, said she wrote poetry when she was younger. So I thought it was really cool to focus on the words and bring the words up because it, the lyrics are the, what's the, the meat and bones of it, the, of, of the song. So it was really good to actually see the words. But in in parallel to the Beastie Boys, again, with the song that made her, which is Rehab, there's just so much irony in that because it was the fact that her, her father was telling her not to go, that she wrote the, that song that then made her massive and then he comes back into the into the picture. So there was just real real irony in what that song was about and that was the song that made her. And then everything that that presented about her image and I guess the judgment that comes with if somebody sings about rehab, there's a lot of judgment there straight away on what sort of person they are. But there was a huge irony similar to the Beastie Boys writing about frat guys and then they become their fans in a different way. But the irony of writing a song about not going to rehab and that becoming her her thing. And they're just, again, in this archetypal rock and roll or artist story, it seems to be there's often... A parental divorce or some kind of family crisis at play when, when the artist is young. It just seems common with artists that there's some kind of, it's a very general statement, but in her case, that the family breakup had a huge impact on her behaviours. But it was just amazing when she went to work in New York with the producer and, and she, she knocked out a cut those songs in a few hours. She wrote them and knocked them out and you see her in the booth and she's just, she's just on and ready. That happened very quick, very quickly from a creative sense, regardless of some of the stuff she'd been going through prior to that. She just went in there, went to New York and just smashed it out. Yeah. Well, when you talk about family, I want to make an allusion to another film in a minute. She also says in the film, you know, I get depressed. I suffer these um, issues, mental health issues or whatever because of my upbringing and the things that went wrong. But she says, I can deal with it because I can get it out. I can express it through my songs and that's what will save me. 
And of course, she isn't saved. It's the fame that kind of, and the pressures of fame that get to her in the end. Who knows if she hadn't been famous, how her life would have unfolded. But she's got, again, that kind of, it's like the Beastie Boys, we were just falling around and having fun and making each other laugh, and then suddenly we realised we were on this treadmill to destruction. And here's Amy saying, don't worry, I'll be fine because I can express myself and through my songs. I'll, I'll get by, I'm safe. Other people don't have that outlet. And yet that outlet, you know, wasn't enough for her. She was friends with Russell Brand. Yeah, he's briefly in the film, isn't he? Yeah, so he's obviously had similar struggles and has now come out the other side and completely reformed and impacting the world in an amazing way. But there's there's an amazing YouTube video where he reads a letter about her and he talks specifically about addiction and the fight against addiction. And what he says, you know, what was evident with her was that her addictions were kind of across the board. She was addicted. If she didn't have the music, she'd replace it with something else. It was always something something filling the space of addiction. The drugs and her addictions would, would shift but were ultimately around the same kind of pain. Yeah, as they say in the doco, the professionals may have got onto her when she was young if she was given that opportunity and, and not stopped by her father, who knows. But then when she did go to rehab, she went with the with the disaster boyfriend. They were in it together. And I think you could see that she, part of her, wanted to do the work. And I could be wrong, but my sense was that if she had been in those rehabilitation environments in a more supportive way or by herself, maybe she would have been able to get more out of those, but she didn't have healthy experiences in her rehabilitation. She didn't have a supportive network really of close people around her. Her friends were the ones trying to take the passports and take the phone, you know, her close friends, but the people in her direct circle, you know, I don't think that helped. Although, you know, I think there was probably a self-destruct thing happening because, as you mentioned, that guy Nick and then her girlfriends from her childhood, they were always there for her. They were always there to pick her up and dust her down. But, yeah, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was for whatever reason, it wasn't enough. But that, that was, that support thing is exactly why I wanted to allude to another film. And I'm not sure if you did watch it because I mentioned it to you the other day, the Billie Eilish doco. Um, the world's a little blurry, which has just come out. That's an interesting film because, again, you've got this girl who's very young when she becomes famous, like she starts at the age of 13. The film is made during a year when she's working on an album at the age of 17. But a constant presence in the film is her parents. She still kind of lives at home. She works creatively with her older brother, who's always there. He's the guitarist and musician, um, and they work on songs together. And both parents are always there. Like once there's a shot where she's doing some big concert and Dad's mopping the stage, 
you know. <laughs> um, and mum is constantly present, supporting her. She's got all those problems of the creative genius having low self-image, being a perfectionist, thinking that her performance isn't as good as it should be. She has physical difficulties. She has tics. She's young. She's catapulted to fame. But she has this support network around her, which ultimately, well, it sees her through the film, Um it was made before lockdown, so she's now 19 or something like that. I don't know how she's going now. But you get that real sense of support from her parents and her family and a network around her that is going to see her through. In that case, her parents are a rock for her. Yeah, because she's not saying... Um, she doesn't have mental health issues. In fact, she talks about self-harming when she was 13. Uh, She talks about anxiety and depression. Um, But, you know, again, you get that sort of exploration of the creative process where she says something like, it's the best feeling to have a song describing how you feel that other people relate to and so you know you're not alone. You feel comforted by the fact that you're singing about things which your audience, you know, relate to and that that creative process is what she kind of lives for. And and she says, you know, don't ask me to describe why I play music. I play music because I have to play music. And again, she the, the the lyrics of her songs, and there's a lot of time, it's a long film, it's like two hours and 20 minutes or something, but there's a lot of attention to her songs as there is in the Amy Winehouse film. But, yeah, it, it's, it's a different narrative about being shot to fame. The parents are a grounding force. It's interesting you, you watch that. I didn't, I didn't watch that one, but there's also the Britney Spears one that's just come out. Yeah, I've heard about that, but I don't know anything about it. From what I have heard about it is that, again, it's the it's more in the Amy narrative in terms of a, a father involved in, in her career. I haven't seen it, so I can't say, but I think it's the opposite side of the coin to the Billie Eilish one by the sound of it. But this is a consistent theme in all of these is the influence of family and people around these these artists as they get propelled and how much that takes away or adds stress to what they're doing and how much it helps put air under their wings. I mean, Amy, I suppose in my in my milieu, Amy is a kind of Jimi Hendrix character, you know, shoots, shoots to fame, the troubled genius, and then dies, you know, because of excess. So Hendrix, the guy from the Rolling Stones, whose name I forget. Brian Jones. Brian Jones, the guy from Pink Floyd, you know, all those kinds of characters. But, you know, fingers crossed, Billie Eilish, for all the difficulties and and um, problems she has. And, and, you know, she rebels in the film against all this kind of fame stuff and that she has to meet all these people and go through the motions with them when she all she wants to be is a genuine human person, human being. But the parents are constantly 
not not manipulating her or out of self. They still live in the same house, you know. Uh, they haven't bought a mansion or anything. They're constantly kind of there for her. You know, the Beastie Boys, they got all the money from a record deal and went and brought a pool with a bridge over it. They're like, you know, if you got a pool, you got to have a bridge over it. And just there's a lot of these rock and roll archetypal stories where bands get a lot of money and they use it excessively and then they've got to smash out an album. There's a classic Dandy Warhols. Do you know the Dandy Warhols? I, I know of them. I think you would appreciate their, their tunes because it's more of a Brit, sort of British influence thing, but they, you know, they were given a huge amount of money to do an album and they said it's conditional. They they negotiated a condition which was to be left alone by the label for six months to do this album and they, the, the label came to check up on them with one month to go and they'd blown the whole lot on drugs and excess and they hadn't recorded a tune. And then in the last, the last couple of weeks, they smashed out the entire album which became a, a classic album. I could have butchered that but that's the overview of... But, you know, these bands being giving all this money and just going nuts as opposed to someone who has a very grounded um, homestead and, and support base around them. But I, I was just going to say the, the thing about Amy, it was a bit of a different time 10 years ago with the, the level of paparazzi. I mean, it was still relatively young in the internet age, like 10 years in or whatever. But I just think that those paparazzi guys, the British media, have a hell of a lot to answer for with just how intrusive... Um, you know, there was one one little thing I picked up on a shot there where the paparazzi were just hounding her, and and one of you heard one of the guys behind the camera say, "Oh, cheer up, Amy." You know, and it's like, well, if you stop fucking hounding her, you know, you, you're you're feeding into you're feeding into this, and then you're antagonising her at the same time. I, I saw it once when I was in London. I was in a bar, and a horde of paparazzi were harassing Sienna Miller, and I'd never seen anything like it. And it was just a flash, like she went past and, and they were knocking each other out, these guys. I was reading today about there's a book by, I can't remember his name, he's not someone I'd heard of, but he used he played for the Socceroos, he's played for Australia, but lived in Spain and speaks Spanish. So when Beckham went to Spain or, or left England, uh, he became Beckham's minder and he talks about how they were nearly killed by the paparazzi. You know, the paparazzi would come up to Beckham's car and they'd bang the window until it cracked with their cameras and they would kind of force his car to kind of stop in the middle of the road by driving straight at him and stuff like this. You know, it's no wonder Princess Di got died the way that she died. I don't know how different the Amy, how different that would be in this modern time with everyone filming themselves on a phone, basically. But um, yeah, just that sense of how vicious. I don't think many of us can imagine what it's like to not be able to step outside your front door, and when she's a fragile person as it is, to be able to deal with all that on yeah. top of everything. It's like it was there wasn't going to be a good outcome in a in a way. And, you know, it's hard to overestimate or even understand the effects on becoming famous as almost as a child. There there are some celebrities who handle it very well. 
I think the, again with the sorry, just with the musician and the touring thing, to me again, it it comes down to the to the relationship and the the experience I had where you're doing you're going to a town, you don't know the town, you're already pissed with your bandmates because you've had a shitty practice the night before or something, and the tension's up, and then you go to a town where you don't know the town, you sound check, but you've got to wait eight eight hours. So you don't really want to be with your bandmates because you've had enough of them because you spend all your time in a room with no windows with them. So you start having a beer at the bar and then you get the energy up to do this show and then there's all that and then the next day you're back on the bus again and you're you're in this you're in this cycle. I experienced that on a on a, a kind of middle level for that to be on a like stadium or arena amplified excuse the pun or a bit amplified even even more if the relationship between the members is not intact and there's a lot of excess it's 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 a time bomb ready to go off and that's why most bands don't have that longevity because it's really about getting at the the marriage of it and and looking at you know to, to be able to handle all that stuff if if your well-being's not not in check and if your relationships around you are not in check, it's you, there's no foundation there. So it's never going to end well, I think. Are we going to score the, um, the Beastie Boys and Amy or not? Do we Do have we... a scoring system? <laughs> we did last time. <laughs> we just gave Pele some footballs, I think. We don't have an official scoring system. But I, I just was going to say, two th- I was going to say, I'm very impressed with your level of knowledge about pop culture, Dan. Are you? I'm very impressed. <laughs> it, that comes through having a 23-year-old daughter. Exactly. <laughs> it, it keeps me up to date. Although I, I said to her, "Have you? do you know about that Billie Eilish doco that's around? She said, yeah, I watched it three months ago. <laughs> I said, you didn't tell me about it. Oh, I didn't think you'd be interested. And, but there were also two things that jumped out for me, which are cool to hear from you as the the master filmmaker is the elder, you know, that master, the wiser. I was thinking a lot about this, what you said, you know, if you're interviewing somebody that, you know, they should be on the screen, they should have the right to be on the, the screen. But in the Amy case, where it's the voice over the footage, you know, that's a different thing stylistic, but you're, what you said that your preference is to, that the person should be shown, shown talking. And also, um, yeah, I'm, I'm for some reason, I'm not a fan of drones. No, well, it's become the fashion. That's, that's the problem. Personally, I'm just not into the big aerial perspective or the, the pulling away from the thing. I'm, I'm more about getting into the intimacy. I'm finding what I'm trying to learn in filmmaking is where do I sit between the rough stuff and the real quality, like the quality? And that's why it's fascinating. I was saying on the last chat, the awesome thing about the Dick Johnson documentary was the transparency of the filmmaking process. And I'm sort of finding myself experimenting between how much is honest, brutal kind of filmmaking and how much he's trying to get the, the, the quality of the image and stuff. So I just, I just find your little takes on those things pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, you know the thing about the thing about drones. I can't. There's a term 
a film grammar term about privileged and unprivileged shots, and I'm not sure which way around it is, but in our lives, we don't experience the point of view of a drone. Okay, we might if we look out of an aeroplane window, but, but we're never looking straight down. And it's like those shots you get in films where someone opens the fridge and the camera's looking at them from inside the fridge. You know, that's... um. It's not a. It's not a natural shot. It's almost a disassociation. It's giving a point of view which we never in in our lives get. And so I like to stay as kind of natural as as I can. And I, if if I'm talking to you and you've got something interesting to say, I don't hold my hand up and cover up your face. You know, I want to see how you how you speak as well as what you speak. So from my perspective, it's kind of rude to cover someone up with other footage when I'm trying to be respectful towards them and hear what they've got to say. But having said that, you know, the stylistic approach in Amy and Senna and those archive films, it works brilliantly, you know. It's the exception perhaps that proves the rule. I quite like the Megan archive film. I mean, I suppose the closest I came was Harold because, uh, you know, he was long gone and there was quite a bit of archive footage. But to make a film entirely out of archive footage with maybe commentary or voiceover would be um, would be an interesting exercise. I saw an interesting YouTube video which broke down Amy Whitehouse's last interview. It's quite a sad video because the guys are the guy doing the video is an expert on body language and reading where somebody's at from their physical mannerisms and stuff. So he deconstructs not not in a vindictive way. He just deconstructs her last interview and where she's at, and it's 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 really quite sad. I mean, that wasn't in the in the doco, but um she's quite lucid and normal in this interview, but she starts to get agitated by the questions. And there's a couple of really minor moments um, where her eyes do some things and stuff, which show that she's, she's been on substances and stuff. And there's just a couple of key moments that that shows she's just not right. And that was her last interview. Capadia essentially, you know, there's the research and pre-production phase and then straight into post. (laughs) There's no, there's no location. Well, except in Amy, he conducted over 100 interviews. Now, whether he just recorded them on audio or whether he shot them in case he needed them, but there was a hell of a lot of interviews he did. Um, but, I, you know, in terms of five stars as a maximum, uh, I'd give the – I think, well – I think it it does help with the Beastie Boys if you're interested in their music. I, I think with Amy it kind of doesn't matter, but you know I'd give I'd give the Beastie Boys almost four stars and certainly Amy four and a half at least four and a half out of five. Probably I'd give five to Senna because I think that's quite an amazing film. But also uh, we can recommend to our viewers Diego Maradona. I, think that's on um, Netflix. And the Billie Eilish one, The World's a Little Blurry, is at the moment is it's actually on at IMAX in Melbourne, which would be quite an experience. But on 
streaming. I think it's only available on Apple TV. And there's the Britney Spears one, which I saw had some reasonable reviews. So, what's it called? No, Framing Britney, I think. Okay, I'll have to have a look at it. I'm pleasantly surprised you gave the Beastie Boys four stars. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I just thoroughly enjoyed that as a viewing experience and as a as I loved the live storytelling. I'm. I'm finding myself more interested in like watching stand-up comedy shows and stuff. I just think when there's a person with a mic on stage, when you add in the visual stuff and they can talk about what happened and it's right there behind them, it's sort of quite a vi- obviously it would be much more visceral there in in real life. But I'd really enjoyed that as a, as a viewing experience. Yeah, no, I think um, well, there's a lot of films at the that you get at the note or any way of filmed performances and filmed operas. And I think with high def and the fact that they can get in close to what's happening on the stage, probably closer than the audience in most of the audience in the theatre, gives it a real, gives that kind of film a real sort of immediacy um, and and an aliveness that, that... might sound like it doesn't work all that well, but it actually does. Good on Spike Jones. Jones. Yeah, Jones. We still <laughs> <laughs> Whichever it is. I'd give him I'd give Amy a little bit more. I'd give Beastie Boys four and I I'd give it a four and I'd give Amy a four point seven five. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a film you would like to recommend for us to review or you have any filmmaker questions, please email lionfuryproductions at gmail.com. Do join us for the next episode when we'll be taking a look at two animal-related docos, My Octopus Teacher, the Oscar-winning film about a man's friendship with an octopus, and Keddy, a look at an ancient city and its unique people as seen through the eyes of cats. Till then, bye for now.